So, okay. So as I said this morning, I, I felt the need to, to kind of break this out into a couple of parts because the content was just too large for one uh, message. And, and so this is, uh, hopefully will help us kind of cover this topic in a, in a, in a more full way. And, um, and then, uh, when I'm done presenting the kind of the Bible study portion of it, then I'm going to invite, uh, Matt and Liz up. They're going to join me up here and we're just going to field questions. And, and speaking of which, uh, this is what we'll do. If you think of a question, if you have something that you're curious about, whether, whether it deals with, uh, specifically something that we address in the talk or something that's related but unmentioned tonight. Either way, um, write your question down on a connection card. And then after the talk, we'll pass around a basket, and you can put all your, your cards in the basket, and, uh, and we'll just deal with them that way. Uh, that way, you can, if, you, if you would like to ask something anonymously, you feel the freedom to do that. Um, and so there, there are more. Can you, raise, raise your hand if you don't have a handout, and we'll get you one. Thanks. All right. <coughs> so here's the issue. Here's the, here's the issue when it comes to, I mean, obviously it's no secret that, um, that the issue of, of homosexuality is, like I said earlier this morning, it's the kind of generation defining issue of our day. And, um, I mean, it, it is, if you, depending on what you say about homosexuals and homosexuality, it can be career ending uh, if you are an ESPN anchor or if you're a politician or any number of other, uh, you know, positions that a person might hold, um, it is just, it, it, I heard a comedian joking about, uh, this issue, which I, I'm going to try not to joke about that tonight, but, uh, I heard a comedian making a comment about this a while back saying that this particular issue is the only issue in the entire world that is pretty much off limits to everybody. Like nobody's allowed to joke about this. Right. And if you do, then, you know, thunder and lightning gets rained down on, on you by, you know, whoever. And so what, what we want to do is, is present this material. Cause, cause this is the deal. This is not, <clears throat> it's not just an issue. There are people's lives at stake here. Uh, and for many of you sitting in this room, people that you know and love and care greatly about, uh, it's not just a faceless issue. It's this deals with the lives of, of people that a lot of us know and love and care about. And so we want to we want to first of all treat the topic with um, with respect, not casually, not um, you know jumping in and trying to make a joke out of everything or anything. You know that we want to treat it with respect because this is what I know about people who. Um, either identify as homosexual or struggle with same-sex attraction. Maybe they're having, maybe, maybe, maybe for some of you, maybe this is you in the room tonight where this is, this whole thing is, is new to you in terms of, in terms of personally, and you're still trying to figure out like who you are. And so I, what I know about people who are in that frame of mind is that it is not a casual or light or easy subject to them. It is, it feels like life and death to them. It feels like life and death. It is, it is deadly serious. Uh, for so many people, they just feel, um, like they don't know who they are, like they are strangers in their own bodies. Um, and it's not, it's not an issue that I want us to be, like I said, casual or light about because 
because the people that we know and love that we want to reach and that we want to share the gospel with, it's a, it's a heavy issue for them. And so and I would encourage you moving forward when you're dealing with uh, friends and family or whoever, you know, that are struggling in these areas <coughs> to take it seriously and offer hope and offer um, truth, but above all, offer a lot of love, offer a lot of love. Um, we need to be, you know, I, I, I say this, I've had this conversation with Jamie actually pretty recently, just about when, when people outside of the flock, outside of church, um, come to us with issues in life that they're struggling with, maybe it's sin issues, whatever it might be. We need to try to be a people who will not be easily shocked because when you are easily shocked, um, you place yourself in a position above what it, what it is that they're going through. And instead, we just need to be a people who will have a listening ear and a caring ear and, um, and, and a prayerful mind, a prayerful heart. Uh, and as we have conversations with people that we know and love and care about, that we can, we can just kind of pray, God, guide me in this conversation. Give me the words that you need for me to say. Um, and there might be occasions when God gives you words to say, and then there might be occasions where his guidance to you is just to sit there and listen. Just, just listen. Be, be caring in that instance. And, um, but we'll get into that. So <clears throat> now, as we dive into the scriptures, like I said this morning, there's only six passages that talk about homosexuality in the Bible. Only six. And, and so... Uh, some of the arguments that will come up for people who embrace uh, and affirm the homosexual lifestyle is that uh, that the Bible is not when the Bible teaches on this topic. The Bible is not referring to um, loving, monogamous, uh, caring homosexual relationships. Instead, it's it's talking about abusive or rape type relationships or things like that. And so that, that then there, the argument, therefore, is since, since the Bible is talking about more abusive-type situations, uh, that it's okay for, for people to be in, uh, like I said, loving, monogamous, homosexual relationships. Uh, and so nobody, nobody is arguing for, like, rape and abuse. That, that Nobody. Right. That's not a part of the argument. That's not a part of the conversation. Nobody's nobody's. So so let's take that off the table. And so what the question I want to ask tonight is this question. Does um, did I go up there? No. There we go. Does the Bible condemn consensual, monogamous, loving gay relationships? Does the Bible condemn that? Um, and so since we have six passages to look at, we're going to have to look at those six passages and try to make the best decision that we possibly can. Right? So I'm just going to start working through these passages. <coughs> I'm going to do a little bit of talking also about some cultural issues that kind of play into these passages as well. And, uh, and then we'll, then we'll open it up. So the first passage in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, and uh, this is the story of the destruction of Sodom. Uh, Abraham's, Abraham's um, what nephew, Lot, uh, is living in the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, God has decided he's going to destroy these cities. Uh, and so there's a, there's a set of events that take place in this story that refer to homosexual 
uh, sex. And, and so in this story, the question that we're going to ask is, how does this story answer that first question that we just answered? And that is, does, does the Bible affirm uh, loving, monogamous, gay relationships? Um, and so as we, as we look at this story, first of all, if, if you, I mean, the city of Sodom, this is where we get the term sodomy from. Uh, I'm sure most of you maybe have put two and two together and got that. Uh, but, but that's where we get the term sodomy from. It's, you know, it's another term for anal sex that's used out there. And, and, and actually, uh, well, let's read the story, and then we'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay, so Genesis 19, uh, starting with verse 1. <clears throat> the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom when Lot saw them. And he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Uh, Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. So, again, what's happened is a couple of angels have come, come to visit Lot. Lot has said, come stay with me in my house and uh, come in off the streets. And, and they said, no, 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 we'll just stay in the town square. And uh, so, but he's, he's, you know, he's honored that a messenger from the Lord has come to visit him. He's trying to take care of them and, and uh, provide a meal for them and that sort of thing. And so, uh, so that's where we are in the story. So keep going. Verse four. <coughs> but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. That's really important. Remember that. All the people to the last men surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not uh, known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Not a good solution, by the way. Uh, Only do nothing to these men. For they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with them, with you than with them. So that what they're saying is, you came as a visitor in this city, passing through, and we welcome you into our city, and now you're acting like a, as a judge over, over us. So uh, then they pressed hard against the man Lot and, draw, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. So, again, what's happened is if if we're to believe the accuracy of this story, that every man in this city, young and old, surrounded this house because of the visitors that they saw with Lot, and out of the wickedness of their hearts just said, Send these guys out. We want to have our way with them. And Lot is like, no, you can't do that. And he very wickedly offers his own daughters in, in their stead, um, which is, was not, again, not the right move. But it's this idea that, so, so I guess the question is, is this the first ever, first and only ever all gay city to ever be on the entire planet? And, uh, and I, actually, I, I, I'm going to argue that, I don't think what's in mind, or I'm sorry, I don't think the evil, I I want to be careful how I word this. I don't think the primary evil in this story is homosexuality. 
I think the primary evil in this story is that of violence and gang rape. I think that's what I think that's really. In fact, all throughout other scriptures throughout the Bible, anytime Sodom is mentioned and the destruction of Sodom, homosexuality is never mentioned. Other things are mentioned, like uh, they were wealthy and didn't give a lick to help the poor. Uh, things like that. That's the reason that they were destroyed. All these other, all these other reasons are given in Scripture for the reasons that, that the city was destroyed. And, it, and the reason is never given that it was because of homosexuality. Now, this isn't, homosexuality is in play in this story, or at least I, sh- I should back up. Same-sex intercourse is at play in this story. Um, however, I don't think that's the primary issue in this story. I think the issue is violence and gang rape here. And, uh, and I think that's why the punishment came down and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to assert this, that Genesis, ah, I lost my page again. There we go. Genesis 19 is not so much a comment, a condemnation of homosexuality, but of a depraved godless society. You got to keep in your mind when when you're talking about a city who the Bible goes out of its way to say every last man in this city surrounded this house. That is a jacked up, depraved society that would behave so barbarically and so violently and just so disgustingly. Right. Um, There's none of us would look at that story and try to justify the actions of the the, actually of anybody in that story. Right. Um, we would none of us would try to justify that. So I'm not, again, I don't think this particular passage speaks to this topic. I think there's something actually much uglier at play here than just simple, uh, you know, gay sex. That's not that's not what's really at play here. Um, although, like I said, it is a part of the story, but I don't think it's the primary part. Okay. All right. I'm going to move on. The next passage that comes up in this story or in in scripture that mentions uh, homosexuality is in Leviticus. There's actually two verses in Leviticus, and we all automatically start rolling our eyes when we mention Leviticus. Like Leviticus is like that book of the Bible that nobody likes to admit that's in the Bible. And so, if you're if you're not familiar with the book of Leviticus, Leviticus is is primary primarily just a laying down of God's laws. Uh, for the Israelites. And so it's, it, it's a very dry read. It can be a very confusing read. Um, if you, in fact, a lot of the laws that were placed, you know, before these people don't make any sense at all to us today. Um, kind of, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, a lot of it just doesn't make sense. Like the hygiene laws that to us make no sense because we have a more advanced idea of, of, you know, hygiene and health and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, other things that, that come up just don't make a lot of sense. So, but the issue, the, the three chapters where these two verses fall in are Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. And Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 kind of form a whole or a unit of scripture in the same way that if you go to Matthew, Matthew five, six, and seven, make up a unit of the sermon on the Mount, Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 kind of form a unit of a, a kind of subset of teaching. So that kind of all goes together, right? And so there's two verses, one in, one in chapter 18, one in, one in chapter 20, and, uh, and they say this. The first one, Leviticus 18 and 22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then further on in Leviticus 20, verse 13, it says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. All right? 
So, again, the primary argument uh, by people who firm, affirm homosexuality, argument against these two scriptures, is that uh, there's a, a kind of uh, uh, power-based, abusive type of uh, sexual uh, relationship that's going on here. It's not, we're not talking healthy quote unquote healthy, um, you know, loving monogamous uh, homosexuality. We're talking about something that's, that's much more abusive. That, that's the argument that's often given. And so, but when you actually look into the words chosen in these passages and, and what they say about what's being taught here and the Hebrew words that were chosen and maybe what some of the, um, you know, little, um, uh, leanings of those words are this is this is what we actually come up with that the Hebrew words used in Leviticus in these verses read as referring to all same sex intercourse between men again i 'm going to take it very slow through these passages and only say what these passages say so we 're not going to talk about these passages don't refer to relationships between women so we 're not going to talk about that yet okay so these passages these two passages refer to uh, same-sex intercourse between men, okay? And, and, and the words that are chosen, the words that are used, are just very generic terms. There are Hebrew words that, that indicate abuse, and they were not used in these passages. Um, and, for instance, uh, another issue, if you look at uh, Leviticus 20. Um, let, me, let me go back up there. Um, Leviticus 20. Uh, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them had committed an abomination. So if this was an, a, an instance where uh, you have one person abusing or raping another person, then the punishment would not be the same for both. Uh, okay, so it's, it, it is a very generic kind of general term for, uh, for, for this type of relationship. We're actually going to come back to these terms uh, later on. All right. So, but here we are that the, the Hebrew words used there in Leviticus in these verses uh, tend to read as referring to all same sex intercourse between men. Okay. And the other point, now the other thing that people bring up about these passages as, as we do with anything, when we're talking about old Testament law is the question is, is, are these laws still applicable to us as new Testament Christians, right? Or, or are, do we throw them out the window? Cause there are some laws in the old Testament that we don't, that, that had a cultural significance that don't have a cultural significance for us. And so is that possibly the case? I mean, you could definitely, that's actually a really strong argument. You could really argue that fact that, that in our culture, this is something that has become widely accepted and, and, and heartily embraced. And so therefore is, does, do these laws apply to us culturally speaking today? It's a really good question to ask actually. Um, and so, there's a couple of things that you look, up, look at when you're asking these questions. Okay, first of all, Jesus says that you know, he didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law, right? And so it, when, in, in Jesus' mind, in fact, and, and when he says those, he's, he, he, he uses teachings where he says, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Well, I tell you that if you look at a woman with lust, you've pretty much done the same. So, so Jesus doesn't shrink the law. He ups the ante on the law. He, he actually makes it harder to follow because he gets into our hearts and our minds rather than just our actions, which, which again, you, you know, again, you, it's, anybody can change their actions, so, but only God can change the heart, right? And so, so, those are, it, so the issue is, let, let me use an example of um, there are, I've used this example before. There's a hygiene law that says uh, when it's a woman's time of the month, she's got to go live outside of the city because she's unclean. Uh, we obviously don't follow that law. 
and and uh, but there was again very legitimate reasons back then that anything that appeared that had even the slightest appearance of sickness of something that could potentially be an illness that would spread throughout the city or throughout their their camp or whatever they took that very seriously because because things spreading through the camp or spreading through the city and wiping out an entire generation, that was a reality they had to live with all the time, all the time. And so they took the hygiene laws very, very seriously, over the top seriously, and, uh, and that. So when it comes to this issue, is it culturally, culturally relevant to us? Uh, I'm going I'm to put it this way. I'll, I'll read it, and then I'll explain it. So these verses are still, <coughs> still applicable to Christians today. Because the rest of the prohibitions of Leviticus 18 through 20 are still binding in some form on us today. And because this prohibition is also repeated in the New Testament. Okay? So those are, those are pretty, um, com- that's pretty compelling evidence that we should still listen to these t- teachings. One, because that whole unit of scripture, Leviticus 18 through 20, everything else that is mentioned there. There's, in fact, there's all kinds of different sexual sins listed. It, it, it does not, as, as is the case with the Bible, it does not single out homosexuality here. It is one of many uh, laws, one of many sins that is listed in this passage. And all of the other ones that are listed in this passage still apply to us today. They're, they're all still things that we uphold today that, that make sense to us. And then the other thing is, it, for instance, uh, Paul <coughs> got rid of, was able to... Um, tell uh, his new converts that he wrote to that the Jewish food laws did did not uh, pertain to them anymore. And so because he made that statement in the Old Testament, because we believe the the word of God is the inspired word of God, then we can look at that and very clearly go, okay, Paul said it doesn't, it doesn't, that doesn't matter. That doesn't apply to us as, you know, non-Jews or whatever. So, so we're good there. We don't have to worry about what we eat as much, you know, that sort of thing. And, the fact that he doesn't do that with this, but instead does the exact opposite, where he does bring this up later on in a verse that we'll read in a little bit, as something that was still considered sin, uh, then, and that's in the church age, then, again, those two pieces of evidence together are compelling enough for us to go, okay, this is something we still, we can't just completely dismiss it. We can't just completely dismiss it. But again, we don't want to jump the gun yet and say, okay, based on these two verses, um, you know, all homosexuality is sin because as of yet, all we have in mind here uh, or in view here is same sex intercourse between men. Okay. That's what's in view in these passages. All right. Okay. I'm going to pause briefly. If there's something that you're just dying to ask right now, or if you want to wait, you can ask it later, but is anybody dying to ask a question right now before we move forward? Yes. How did I know? Yes. No, it's not. And the reason is because we now live under a law of grace where they were just under a law of law. And so uh, you could, there were so many different things. Again, when these laws were given, they were a people on the move. They had to keep kind of a tight running ship or things could really easily get out of control. Just you know, Moses goes up to the mountaintop for a couple of days and comes down and the whole place was falling apart, worshiping other gods. And so, I mean, they had to really kind of keep things under control. And so I mean, there were little things like, I say little things, if there was a, a, a child who, who very deeply, hurtfully disrespected, dishonored his parents, 
um, then there was a death penalty for that too if the, if the, if the crime was extreme enough. Okay, so again, it's a it's a time when you know the death penalty was much more common. Which by, by the way, it was much more common up until just a handful of decades ago. Right? I mean, that, that, it's a relatively new development in the history of planet Earth that we don't just give the death penalty for every little thing. Okay, and so no, no, we live under a law of grace now. So, all right. All right, I'm going to move on, and we'll come back. Write down your questions if you have them. So, okay, so we're going to before. So this is the entirety of the Old Testament teaching about uh, about homosexuality. Okay, we're getting ready to move into the New Testament, but before we do that, I want to hit a couple of things um, culturally speaking. So you have some background because the New Testament wasn't written in a vacuum; it was written. Um, in a particular culture, in a particular time where things were common and some things weren't common. And, and it's helpful to know what kind of culture they lived in so you know what kind of culture they were teaching into. Okay? And that will help us move forward. So the first part I want to deal with is this. First century Greco-Roman homosexuality. And so when I say first century, that's around the time of uh, Jesus Christ and the early church and that sort of thing. When I say Greco-Roman, I mean Roman Empire. Um, and so I'm not specifically talking about Hebrew culture. We'll deal with that next. But I'm talking about Roman culture, uh, the Roman Empire. What, was, what do we know about homosexuality during this time period? Okay. So first of all, we know that same-sex intercourse was common. Same-sex intercourse was very common uh, at, this t- at this time frame in history. Uh, in fact, we look at our culture and we tend to, th- we, th- we think that we are just, we've gotten so depraved and with the, the rise of pornography and all kinds of stuff. But it was actually much more rampant in the Roman Empire than it is in our life. To the point that they would have, uh, there would often be uh, uh, just, just, just a water jug that you would sit on the table to pour water at a mill might have depictions of, of all kinds of wild kind of sex. And you're just, I mean, you're passing it to your kid to pour this water and it just, just wild, wild art and stuff all over the place. It was very, very common. And so same sex intercourse was common in this time. So it's not a lot of time, pe- times people think, well, this is something that has only become common recently. No, it's been around since the history of man. Okay. And, and it was very common during this time. Uh, the most common, this is where we're going to get a little, uh, sketchy. Okay. Hold on, hold on. Everybody take a big, deep breath. Okay. So the most common form of same-sex intercourse practiced in the, in the Roman Empire was uh, called pederasty. Pederasty. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I need to put some slides up there for you. Hold on. My apologies. Uh, pederasty. Okay. Pederasty was uh, the relationship between a, uh, a teacher and a student. A mentor and uh, and a disciple, so to speak, uh, or a, or a mentee, however you want to re- define that term. Uh, and so, what it would what it would look like, and and by the way, it wasn't considered in that culture. Now, we, I'm no in no way defending this. It is deplorable. It is disgusting, and we know much better nowadays what it actually was. But back in this time, it was not considered abuse. It was not considered uh, molestation or anything like that. It was, it was just this uh, affectionate bond a teacher would have with a pupil. And so what was happening a lot, a lot, I mean, you read all through uh, ancient Roman literature and the philosophers and historians and everything else, this kind of re- these kind of relationships were so common, the most common form of, of same-sex intercourse in that culture at that day. But it was not frowned upon. And by the way, it also was not viewed as homosexual. It was just simply intercourse. 
And so a person could participate in this and not be viewed as what we would describe as somebody who is homosexual, if that makes sense. It gets even more interesting on the next point. So the next point is this, that uh, the second most common form <coughs> excuse me, of same-sex intercourse was more power-based. Okay? So it would be a slave owner um, um, exercising authority over a slave uh, by having intercourse with that slave, or it would be a conquering general having intercourse with the people that he had just conquered, or it would be uh, a high-ranking politician with a servant or whatever else. And so it was always power-based. And here's what we know about Roman culture. As long as it was a, a person of power engaging in same-sex intercourse with somebody positionally, um, 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 uh, societally beneath them, it wasn't considered gay. It was just a natural, normal part of life. It was just something that happened, and it wasn't considered what you know. They wouldn't necessarily be be considered homosexual the way we would consider people homosexual today. It had nothing to do with the act uh, uh, or the uh, yeah. It was all about power-based structures and things like that. So these two forms were the most uh, common forms of of same-sex intercourse in the Roman Empire. Now. What we also know is this, that same-sex intercourse was, like I said earlier, it was not taboo. It was just kind of a part of life. It was kind of accepted. It wasn't really frowned upon or anything like that. However, being effeminate was taboo. So if you participated in same-sex intercourse, nobody really, as long as you you kept a certain uh, designs, you know, societal, you know, structure that was set up. Nobody really looked down on that or thought anything weird about that. However, if you were a man who was effeminate, and when I say effeminate, I don't mean um, like a lot of times we will today describe effeminate as, you know, uh, maybe a, a guy who would rather hang out with girls, or uh, you know, he's some, a guy who's not into hunting or cars or whatever. That, that's not that's not what we're talking about. When I say effeminate, it was a more extreme form of effeminism where it would be a man really taking on the role as a woman. Okay, and that was looked down upon. That was seen as inferior and something to be, you know, the, the people, the, the men in, in society, that society that were effeminate were really outcasts in that society. They, you know, they were really looked, uh, looked down upon. So homosexual sex, not a big deal. Being effeminate was a very, very big deal. All right. So also, uh, lastly, is that uh, loving homosexual relationships between peers were not common at all. Just for you to, like, like you know, the way our uh, um, culture is set up today, very common for, you know, two guys to form a, a friendship and eventually a relationship and now can seek to get married and that sort of thing. Uh, that would have never happened or very, very rarely happened back in Roman times, in the first century times, because, again, it was everything had to fall into the way they just did life. And that was, not a, that was just not a part of it. That was not a part of it. Okay. So now compare that to first century Jewish homosexuality. <coughs> first century Jewish homosexuality. So same time period, but the Jewish culture. Okay, who, by the way, they were un- we know they were under uh, rule by the by the Romans, right? So all of the Jewish literature from the per- from that period, from five hundred years before the first century to five hundred years after the first century. All of that literature, whether it's historical 
or religious, rabbinical literature, um, whatever kind of literature, all of that literature offers a negative and sinful view of same-sex intercourse, zero exceptions. Zero exceptions. So even though the, the Jewish people lived in the Greco-Roman world, and this was the influence that they had in their life that we just described earlier, they completely rejected that. I mean, down to the last person. There, we, there are literally zero evidence in terms of written literature, historical or religious or whatever else, zero evidence that would point to any Jew being okay with that. It just does not exist. It doesn't exist at all. Now, the reason that's important is, is this. Uh, to say that Christians should endorse homosexuality, we would then have to recreate an un-Jewish Jesus and an un-Jewish New Testament. And when I say un-Jewish, I mean you would have to pull Jesus out of the context in which he lived and grew up in and was taught and the laws that he was taught and everything else. You would have to pull all of the New Testament writings out of the context in which they were written in order for us to say that you know, Christians can embrace this. Because that is not what this book, that is not the um, environment that this book was written in at all. At all. So... Now, does that mean that, is that alone enough evidence for us to say, you know, that it's absolutely sinful? I don't think we're quite there yet, but I would say it's strong evidence. It's really strong evidence, and it should be at least considered. And so what about Jesus? What does Jesus say about homosexuality? He doesn't say a thing. He doesn't say a thing. Jesus is completely silent about homosexuality. And, uh, and so if you make an argument about how Jesus might have felt about homosexuality, you're, you're, it's an argument from silence. And sometimes arguments from silence can be, uh, can be argued and argued well. And sometimes they're argued and argued very poorly, you know, kind of really weak arguments. Uh, but this is what we do know about Jesus and the way that he taught. First one is this. He takes a very conservative stance on sexual sin. Even though he was very liberal in love. He was very conservative when it came to the law and when it came to sin. Uh, and so it's very important for us as Christians, and this is something you need to really apply to your own life, that even though Jesus' example uh, to us is to be liberal when it comes to love, it does, his example is not for us to be accepting when it comes to sin. And there's a difference. There's a difference. That we can be extremely loving and still stand on the truth still stand on the truth. Now, it's a tightrope. It's a balancing act to try to do that, and especially in the culture that we live in today. It can be really, really difficult, which is why I would say if you're going to err to one side or the other, err towards love. Err towards love. And when I say err towards love, I don't mean abandon truth. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if, if, if you want to communicate love and truth to somebody, um, they will not hear truth until they hear love. They will not hear truth until they hear love. And so it's really important that we do that. So the other thing is this. Uh, even though he takes a very conservative stance on sexual sin, uh, he's portrayed as one, as we talked about this morning, he eats with sinners and outcasts. He is drawn to people who are the outcasts of their society. And, uh, and so it would be completely in the realm of what was of what we read about Jesus, of what would be our, our natural expect, expectation of how Jesus would act, to be a person who would not shun homosexual, homosexuals, but rather 
a person who would embrace them and make them feel loved. And so I think that's really important for us to consider as well. The third point there with Jesus is this, that Jesus always leads with love. He communicates unflinching love and compassionate truth. Unflinching love and compassionate truth. And so we need to, uh, like I said, you know, there's a whole sermon about it that I gave this morning, but we need to do a much better job at how we portray truth to make sure that people hear love in those proclamations and not just judgment, not just judgment. All right. So this leads us to the next passage uh, in the New Testament that talks about uh, homosexuality, and it's in Romans chapter one. It's the Apostle Paul. All right. Romans chapter one. Um, so the book of Romans is this kind of theological treatise about the Christian faith. It's about salvation. It's about grace. It's about who's included in the family of God and who's not included in the family of God. It's about what, what the criteria are for entering into a relationship with God. And Paul masterfully writes this document. Uh, you've heard me say it before that it stands toe to toe with any philosophical piece of literature that's ever been written in the history of man. It is, it is a masterpiece of a, of a piece of work. And Paul writes this document and starts off in chapters one through three by building the case for the need for Jesus Christ. And he does that by really pushing the envelope to, to, to drive home how sinful, how rebellious, how depraved a people we are and we have become and, and, and he just lays it all out. And so chapter one has a, has this long list of, of sins to kind of show how depraved of people we are and how that we are all condemned because of our sin. And so one section of that chapter is verses 26 and 27. And it says this, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So now it's really easy for us to pull this passage out of the, out of the chapter, plaster it on a piece of paper and say, this is what the Bible says. But I, I, I want it. I, the only reason I didn't print the whole chapter is I was tr- trying to save some paper. Uh, but what I should have done for, for a healthy conversation is to show you visibly, and I, I would encourage you to go back and read Romans 1 through 3, that these two verses um, does not mean that Paul opens up his letter to the Romans by, by telling the world how depraved the world has become and pointing as to the gaze as proof that there is... All kinds of sin. Romans chapter 1 does not condemn homosexuals. Romans chapter 1 condemns all of us. Everything. Don't lose sight of that. Romans chapter 1 condemns every single one of us. No matter what sin is your favorite pet sin or, you know, whatever else, it condemns every last one of us. We're having a conversation about this topic. So we're going to pull this out and look at what this says. But Romans one is not a condemnation of just gay people. Romans chapter one is a condemnation of the human race. Okay. Now, what does this, uh, this passage say? First of all, it says, uh, what I, what I just says in Romans uh, one, Paul argues that all humans are condemned 
and he includes same-sex intercourse of both men and women in his long list of sins as proof of this fact. Okay, that's really critical that you get that. It's it's actually hugely critical to our understanding of this topic that Paul specifically identifies women in this. It's the first passage in the Bible, uh, actually the only passage in the Bible, where where same-sex intercourse with women is mentioned. And it's critical because one of the main arguments, again, that will come out for those who affirm uh, homosex- the homosexual lifestyle one of the main arguments that they'll give, especially with, this, with passages like this one, is that, um, is that uh, it's an abusive type of uh, sex, an abusive type of uh, relationship that is in mind. It's not healthy, loving, monogamous you know, relationships that, that, that Paul or the rest of Scripture has in mind. But what we know about historically about this time is that while... With same-sex intercourse between men, it very, it very often was power-based. You know, who was the more powerful of, of the couple and abusive or whatever else? That was very often the case. With women, it was almost never the case. With women in same-sex relationships, it was almost always peer-based, not power-based. Does that make sense? And so that kind of shoots that argument out of the water. The fact that Paul would include women into this conversation uh, speaks volumes to the fact that we're not just talking about abusive, rapey type of you know, homosexuality. Instead, it's a more general term. It's, we're talking about just, same, just general same-sex intercourse. That's what we're talking about here. Okay? All right. Last two verses. The first one is in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. <laughs> it says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. I put a couple Greek words there. We're going to come back to them. Nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, <coughs> nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's some powerful words there. Now, again, what uh, the ESV translates as men who practice homosexuality, that's one sin in a long list of sins. Once and the Bible doesn't sing, there's no huge, um, you know, essay in the Bible about, you know, the evils of homosexual sin. It's always one of many that's listed whenever it's talked about. And so the Bible does not single out this topic. Um, and so anyway, we're going to come back to those words, but let me read for you first Timothy first, and then we'll come back to him. First Timothy chapter one says this. Now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and, and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, 
with which I have been entrusted. So again, here's the other passage where it's missing, the last passage in, in Scripture where it's mentioned, and it's mentioned as one of a long list of sins of who, is, who, who can have a part in the kingdom of God and who can't have a part in the kingdom of God. Now, if we go back to uh, the First Corinthians, there's one part I want to really drive home to you. The last statement, he says, um, all these people, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, all these you know, uh, sinful people. And he says, and such were some of you, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So he, he makes this long laundry list of sinful, unrighteous people and homosexual behavior included in that list. And he's talking to this church and he said, there are many of you in this church that that used to describe you. But guess what God did for you? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In other words, God saved you. God saved you. So this concept that somehow, that you know, most of us would never say it, but I think we live our lives and we have conversations that go in such a direction that it's almost like we believe that somehow homosexuals are outside the reach of God. And that is just simply not true. Just simply not true at all. Now, I want to point out a couple of words, those two Greek words there, uh, two of them that are used there in 1 Corinthians, one of them uh, that's used in uh, 1 Timothy. The first one is uh, malakoi, and the second one is uh, arsenikoitai. Okay, malakoi and arsenikoitai. Now, the way the Greek reads there, the way the Greek reads there, you see how it says, uh, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. The way that the Greek actually reads is nor malakoi, nor arsenikoitai. So it divides it into two different categories in Greek, and the English translator kind of push it all into one category and call it um, men who practice homosexuality. And I want to tell you what those two words mean because I think it also adds a little bit to the conversation here. The first one, uh, the, the malakoi word, actually is li- the literal meaning of that word is soft, soft. And malakoi in ancient Greek literature was the word that would be used for an extremely effeminate man, an extremely effeminate man. And not just, again, not just a man who was kind of interested in what were typically women's things, but a man who was so extremely effeminate that it, it even went into his own sexual practices, okay? Malakoi means soft. It's a very effeminate man. So Paul is saying, nor the effeminate. And then he goes on to say, and again, not necessarily effeminate as we would just oftentimes describe, but a very extreme type of effeminate man. And then the next one, arsenikoitai. Arsenikoitai literally men, means men who have sex with males, Men who have sex with males. So it's not actually, it's not even, it doesn't even mean men who have sex with men. It leaves it wide open. It could be men who are practicing some of the sex with boys that we talked about earlier, uh, and, or men who are having sex with men. It could go, it could be either one. That word could describe either one. And it's very, very likely that as Paul's preaching and teaching into this Roman society, and he knows their practices, and he knows the whole pederasty that goes on and all that kind of stuff, it's very popular that people have come to Christ that used to participate in that kind of lifestyle. And he's saying, this used to describe some of you, but no longer. You've been washed. You've been set free from all of that, right? 
Very, very interesting. And as far as the, the whole, uh, the, the Molokai, is that right? Yeah, Molokai, the, 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 the effeminate men, um, I think this speaks very directly into what we've been seeing in our culture a lot lately when it comes to uh, gender issues and um, gender confusion, that sort of thing. I've said this before. I've taught, I'm not going to spend a whole lot about it tonight, but I think that the kind and compassionate thing for us to do when we see someone experiencing gender confusion is not to celebrate that, but rather to reach out in compassion and try to guide them to the truth, try to actually help them. Those people are hurting inside. They cannot feel comfortable in their own skin. They are in huge, huge turmoil trying to figure out who they are. And the world around them is throwing them a party. And in, in, my, in my view, that's not loving. It's cruel. It's just cruel. And we need to, we can look at verses like these and go, God can change anybody. God can change. Such were some of you, but no longer. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. There is hope for everyone. No one lives outside the grace of God. And so the, the last point there is this, that in his letters to Corinth and Timothy, Paul lists sinful behaviors, including extreme effeminate men and men who have sex with other males. And he also indicates that they are not beyond salvation. Really important for us to remember that. He also indicates that they're not beyond salvation, okay? So these are the conclusions, and then we'll open it up. So write your questions down if you got them. Um, first conclusion is this. The Old Testament, the New Testament, and all other Jewish writings of that period condemn same-sex intercourse, okay? That's, that's the evidence. The second one is this. The Bible never singles out same-sex intercourse and never elevates it above other sins. That never happens in the Word of God. And then the third one is this. Those who have same-sex attraction are absolutely included in God's plan of salvation. All right? So I, my, my assertion to, to you all tonight is that the Bible does um, say that homosexual, uh, or let me, let me get more clearly, clearly defined this here. The Bible does say that same-sex intercourse is a sin. It absolutely is a sin according to the word of God. Now, the choice that you have to make as somebody in 21st century America reading a 2,000-year-old book is, uh, like we talked about this morning, am I going to be a person of the book? Am I going to be a person of the book or am I going to kind of pick and choose what I think is appropriate and what's not appropriate? And, uh, and that's obviously not a decision I can make for you. All I can do is kind of lead you to the water and hope that you'll drink. Um, but, but when you look at the evidence, that's, that's the evidence, that's the evidence. Um, but, but again, I think those second two points, I think are the most important points that yes, the Bible calls that sin. However, however, it does not elevate that sin above any other sin. And, and, and those who experience that attraction, the gospel is for them too. The gospel is for them too. And it's relevant to them as it is relevant to us. And so shame on us when we, kind of hold people up to a different standard than we hold ourselves? I, I, I'll close with this, with this question. I asked somebody this uh, a few months ago. Everybody in this room has a sin that you struggle with. Maybe it's sexual in nature. Maybe it is more along the lines of greed or pride or anger. or I mean, But you got one that you know just kicks your butt all the time, right? 
If you knew that a brother or sister in Christ who struggled with same-sex attraction, if you knew that they failed in their temptation as often as you fail in your temptation, would you view them differently than you view yourself? Think about that for a second. I've got, I've got some stuff that I struggle with, and, and I don't have complete victory over those things in my life yet. And if somebody that struggles with same-sex attraction failed as often as I fail in some areas of my life, would I kick them to the curb? Or would I hold out the same hope to them that I hold out for myself? And, and I want to challenge us to be a church that, that again, we're not shocked We just know human nature is what it is, and God's grace covers it all, and we're going to offer that grace to as many people as we possibly can. That's the kind of church we need to be. I I really want to challenge us to be that church. Um, So I'm going to invite Matt and Liz up. Um, Matt, you get the short chair. Liz, you get the tall one. I'm really glad that you delegated that because I was going to be the awkward thing. (laughs) All right. Um, actually, uh, Jesse, could you, um, collect cards? If anybody has cards, maybe pass them all down to this end or something and he'll collect them. If you have cards, just pass them on down, pass them on down. (laughs) Pregnant person on a little stool. All right. All right. Thanks. Okay. So a couple questions. Now we will, we'll deal with these questions and then we'll also, if you, if you want to just audibly ask a question, you can do that. If you have a comment that you think would be helpful to the conversation, you're welcome to, to make that comment as well. And, uh, and we'll go from there. So the first one is this. Okay. It's a great question. Um, can homosexuals stay gay and go to heaven? Can homosexuals stay gay and go to heaven. Um, I'm going to let you guys hit it first, but I think there's some terminology there that has to be cleared. I think the first issue there is terminology, but you guys want to hit that? Matt? I guess it goes to me. Go ahead. Um, well, I mean, we've been spending a lot of time talking about defining, you know, what gay is, what intercourse is, what homosexuality is. Um, and I think this is one of the things where as unpopular, you know, as it is, and these are the reasons why these questions are coming up, which is why we're doing this. Um, you know, we, we do, I think as leaders need to emphasize, you know, some of the specifics of these things. Um, but I want to kind of do the political thing here and counter that and say, do alcoholics go to heaven? You know, we, like we've been talking about elevating certain sins above, I guess you could say beyond salvation or, you know, beyond repair. Um, so I don't think that one specific sin is going to prevent you from getting to heaven. However, we do have to go back to, you know, where is the heart of the person? Are they struggling with sin? Are they living in sin? And if they are living in sin, have they recognized the grace that God has extended to them? Are they living inside of the spirit of God? And if you go to First John uh, chapters 1 through 3, it, it, it really puts down a very black and white kind of blueprint for, hey, are you, is the Spirit of God in you? And if the Spirit of God is in you, then you should be loving, then you should be away from these sins. 
and is not identifying certain sins in the, in the book of First John, the first few chapters. If you go and read it, I really encourage you to do that. But he kind of gives a, just a black and white, like, hey, if you are in the world and living the way that the world lives, the Spirit of God isn't in you. And so you can pull that and say, well, gosh, you know, I sinned like three times today. I guess I'm not going to heaven. I don't know, you know. And, and, and so, I mean, you wrestle with that. Um, but, I mean, I, I want to pass it back over to you guys. But, um, I, like what, be, what we've been saying, there, there really isn't a sin that elevates someone beyond the ability to be saved. But I guess the question of what it's really asking is, you know, if you're saved, if you are Christian, if you identify as a practicing homosexual, do you go to heaven? That's good. Liz, you want to speak into that? Sure. Um, I think the only, the only thing that I would really add to that would be um, that, you know, the Bible's very strong about when somebody speaks out um, in, like, in anger, like, in a sense to the Lord. So if you um, were to say, if you were a homosexual and you said, you know, I, I, don't want Jesus. I don't want any part of Jesus as God who, you know, I'm the way that I am. Like, if he has a problem with it, then if you're speaking out in that way against the Lord, I would say the Bible's very clear on uh, where, you know, you're going to spend your eternity. Um, but as for, kind of like what Matt was saying, I was the first thing that popped in my head is if, you know, drunkenness, somebody who struggles with that kind of behavior, are they, are they still not allowed in heaven? And, um, I also think, too, it's never our place to answer that question. That's one of those conversations that's between that person's heart and the Lord. And uh, just how, like, we, like, um, I have, like, a grandfather, my dad's dad, who uh, he never went to church. He never did all these things. He was a great man. If you asked him, um, you know, about his life, he would say, I'm very blessed, you know. And uh, people have asked, you know, like, oh, do you think that he's in heaven? Because he never, you know, really, really pronounced that he had a relationship with the Lord and uh and you know I can't answer that question that's like that's something that's between the Lord and with him and just like I think that that's the same thing with somebody who struggles with homosexuality that's just between him and the Lord and uh, we all know how God prized at our hearts differently um and also I would say too there's something special about those moments before you pass away it's interesting to me that not in every situation but in a lot of situations um a lot of people tend to when it's like a natural progression of a disease, let's say like with cancer or something, there's like, you know, the last two days of their life, they don't, they don't say anything. They're fairly unresponsive. I've always taken a lot of um, comfort in knowing that that's time in my heart, at least where I feel that that's time where they're spending time, where they're just listening. And maybe the Lord's talking to them in a still quiet voice that we've never, that person's never heard. So um, I think to jump to the conclusion that a homosexual person is, you know, never going to have salva- complete salvation is just foolish on our end because we just don't know. Yeah, I would, I would say that the question, can homosexuals stay gay and go to heaven? I think what is meant by the question is, can homosexuals um, have gay sex and still go to heaven? I think that's really what's being meant here. And, and, I, would, and I would just say this, that um, first of all, what's the criteria for salvation for any of us that we believe in? Jesus Christ, that we say, proclaim him as our Lord and Savior, that we, you know, that we believe in the resurrection. Those, those are the things that are, are, are the criteria for salvation. And it's not, oh yeah, and you got to be heterosexual too. It's not that, right? And so is it possible for a, a person who 
experiences same-sex attraction to go to heaven? Absolutely. Absolutely. Unequivocally, yes. It is, it is possible. In fact, it's likely that there will be people that have same-sex same sex attraction in heaven. The, the question then becomes, um, are they then people who give in to those urges? We all have unnatural urges. Every single one of us. Have ur- I mean, you know, my, my, my natural urges, and, I, and this is no surprise to Jamie, we've had this conversation, but my natural urges are not to be faithful to one, one woman for the rest of my life, okay? But I battle against those urges and choose a different path. And it could be that for the person who experienced same-sex same attraction that comes to faith in Jesus Christ it, and, and decides to follow him, it could be that God glorifies himself uh, by delivering them from that attraction. And it could also be that God glorifies himself in their life by not delivering them from that attraction, but by rather so that their choice to serve him against their own nature would be a testament to what God means to them. Uh, and so we, and like you guys said, we, we don't know. We, we, don't, we don't know what's in the heart of, of people. Uh, all we know is that, um, that God loves us all. God loves us all. And so it's a great question. The, the second part of that question was struggle versus openly gay. And I think that's a good qualifier too, because we all have sins that we struggle with. Uh, but when it's, but when you give yourself over to a particular lifestyle and we can take, we can take the gay question off the table and just ask, you know, in terms of, um, just premarital sex, um, you know, it, you're not going to, I'm not going to fight it anymore. It's just my nature. It's who I am. It's, it's insane for me to fight these urges. You could, you could go down that path contrary to God's word, or you could choose to honor God with your choices. And it's not an easy path, but it's the right one. And so I think the struggle is all part. There are sins that I commit. I'm not going to say on a regular basis, but on a more regular basis than I'm comfortable admitting that I struggle with, but I haven't given myself over to. And I think the struggle is key. I really do. Not that we earn our salvation by struggling, but that we, that the struggle is evidence that we are making Jesus Lord of our lives, if that makes sense. So, all right. Next question is this. Is being attracted to same gender people a sin if you don't act on the temptation? I think we kind of dealt with that, but go ahead. You take it first. Um, I would say no. Like, I, I mean... Bible's pretty clear about when that sin is a sin and it's upon the act of it. Um, I think, although you could piggyback and say that when Jesus like increases the law, if you look at somebody lustfully, then you know that is a sin. And so, I guess if you're if you're considering it in that aspect, if you're looking at somebody with lust across the board, male, women, male, female, of your same gender or not, it is a sin. And I think part of that also echoes maybe the the last little part of the first question where it says um i think the wording was can someone still be gay and go to heaven that was the first question mm-hmm. um by the the world standpoint someone being gay would be having attraction to males if you're a male or having attraction to females if you're a female and then building from there um and so from that standpoint from the world's definition of being gay then that's your answer for one and two. Um, but what question you're asking is, you know, can you still have 
affection, can you still have you know, a drawing for that? Well, the world's definition would say, oh, you know, well, you, you're, you know, you're still gay and, and, and you're still having these, these attractions because that's who you truly are in your identity. And right now, our world is, is having an identity, identity crisis left and right. I, I see teens, and, and I'll just plug this really quickly, you know, I mean, it depends on where you go for your stats and specifically what you're looking at, but the suicide and attempted suicide rate among teens who identify as gay, lesbian, gender, whatever, are absolutely through the roof. Mm -hmm. Through the roof. And in, in the attempted suicide rates, but again, depending on where you go, 25 to 45% attempt rate or higher. Which is why I say, like I said, the statement I made earlier, that when, when you have people really struggling in these issues, these aren't just people making decisions for an alternative lifestyle. These are people that are hurting I mean, legitimate. Now, we have to own up to, as a church, we have to own up to what amount of hurt we might have been the cause of. Because I think that a lot of that is possible, too. And we got to own that and deal with that and repent of that. However, there's a lot of just internal hurt that doesn't come from an outside source that just comes with them trying to figure out who they are. And I think the identity issue is a big part, too, especially when you're talking, when you're having a conversation with somebody who's already a follower of Jesus Christ, but they're experiencing same-sex attraction. Because I've had conversations with, with people like that that will say, uh, so I, I, I'm identifying as, you know, gay, or I, I identify as bisexual or whatever. And one of my first things, again, especially when you're talking to somebody who's a follower of Jesus Christ, one of my first things I say to that that is not your identity. Mm-hmm. That is not your identity is child of God. And, and we have bought into this idea that our sexual identity is our primary identity. And it is not, it is not, we are your prime, especially for the follower of Jesus Christ, your primary identity is that of a child of God and everything else just falls in line after that. So the identity is a critical part of the conversation. Right. And just like how Jeff walked us through the culture of the Greco Roman era that, that Jesus was walking around in and the terms and everything in there with pederasty and everything in that culture, pederasty was approved in our culture today would not be approved at all. So understanding in our culture today where you would be identified or, or, or encouraged to identify yourself as a, a homosexual if you have any kind of homosexual urges. And so in our, in our day, in our culture, we have to, we have to understand that, that the identification of homosexual, biblically speaking, is not having affection. That's the world's definition. Mm-hmm. All right, good. So next question is this. Is this movement more, about, more of an anti-church movement and less about a pro-gay movement? Is this movement more about anti-church and less about being pro-gay? Anybody want to tackle that one? I'm going to abstain from this one. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what that means. Okay. So here, here's what I think. I think that, and I think, I think it's uh, the question re- re- refers to what some people call the gay agenda in our in our culture, um, and and is it. A, is it a lashing out against church or is it about, you know, civil rights for gay people? And, and I would say yes. <laughs> I would say yes. I, I, I think it's probably a little bit of both. In terms of the so-called gay agenda, um, 
if it is directed in anger towards church and about and, and has somehow morphed into what we might look at as discrimination against Christians now, um, I would say it, that stems from um, a horrible history of the church that many uh, same-sex attracted people have experienced a huge level of hate and being kind of outcast by church and by Christians. And so they, and so that group, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, terminology is everything. And so I'm trying to be careful in my terminology, but that group has then many of them, not all, but many of them have then maybe overreacted to fight hate with hate. Um, however, whether it is anti-church or not, our role is the same. Our role is still one of love and compassion. Our role is still to be welcoming and inviting. Our role is to, is to preach the gospel. And when I say preach the gospel, I don't mean tell them you're sinning and you're going to hell. That's not the gospel. When I say preach the gospel, I mean preach the fact that Jesus loves you. He came to rescue you. You are accepted in him. And, he's, and he, he welcomes you into his kingdom. That's the gospel, right? And that's what we need to be preaching. Um, the next question on this card is uh, homosexual, okay, it's homosexual, homosexuality and church membership, yes or no? Uh, and so I guess the question is, can someone identify as homosexual and still have membership in the local church? Um, why don't I address this one and you guys can piggyback yeah, yeah, yeah. off yeah, what I yeah, I think that's idea. what we should do. Okay, so I'll address this. I, I think that... Um, um, I heard it recently described this way. I'm still trying to process whether or not I agree with this, but it sounded good at the time. So bear with me. Um, that with, uh, so we talked about what's the criteria for becoming a, a citizen of the kingdom. What's the criteria for being for salvation? It's faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's it. That's it. That's all faith in Jesus Christ. Um, when we talk about the criteria to become the, then a member of a local church, and when I say member, I mean an official member. You've been welcomed officially into the, you know, uh, you know, and yeah, you're, you're a voted voting member, that sort of thing, right? Uh, with, with, as this is the case with our church, as is the case with every other church I know, there's a certain membership covenant involved in, in becoming an official member of a church. And that uh, deals with issues like submission to spiritual authority. It deals with issues like um, um, lifestyle choices and, and, uh, and, and living a life that is honorable to God and, and doesn't bring dishonor to Christ in his name and to his church. And, and so, uh, and then if, let's go up another, let's, let's say if, if we were going to ordain you as a pastor in the church, there's even more criteria now. And so the, the point that was made in this thing I saw the other day was that with every level of association comes extra levels of accountability. And so I, I would say this, that while, while anyone and everyone is welcomed in, welcome into our fellowship and into our family here at Living Hope, uh, for those who seek membership, 
for those who seek to teach, uh, for those who seek leadership in some way in our church, there's going to be um, added on criteria, and that has nothing to do with your salvation. It has to do with maturity. It has to do with making sure that the people we have teaching are not immature believers or living lives that are contrary to Scripture. Because then, then we, when that happens, then uh, you know, a, a, a community around us looking in at what's going on here goes, it's just a bunch of hypocrites over there. They're not living what they say they believe and all that kind of stuff. So, again, with every level of association comes extra levels of accountability. So that's not mine. I heard that just the other day. I'm just regurgitating to you. And it sounded good. At, it sounded good at the time, and and I'll stick with that for now. Yeah. I'm I'm assuming that the intention of the question is that it's a person actively living a homosexual life. And and so that's my assumption. If it's, if it's a person again, who just deals with same sex attraction and they've given that over to God and they're living life the best they can, then there's no question at all. You're right. So, yeah. And I was actually talking with one of the pastors in town about this. Um, Paul Sheldon over at uh, Grace Fellowship. We were doing an event here today. This is one of the, the things that's been, we've been talking about a lot over the last week or so. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware, but um, it's pretty controversial out there these days. <laughs> and as a result, um, churches are amending, denominations are amending their constitutions to legally um, create defense because churches are, are at, at the point now where we are, you know, within our country denying people's rights. So um, that's the next question. Let me ask this question, yeah, then you yeah, can continue. Can, so, I just, oh, can I just pull back really quick? So, okay, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, Jeff hit it when he talked about the spiritual authority, because that goes into every single one of us as a member. Um, if you walk into a church on any given Sunday and you go in there, um, if someone asks you to leave, then I hope that you did something really, really, really wrong, um, like scream at someone and knock something over and spill coffee on the pastor or something. Um, you may or may not have been asked to or leave. start a jackhammer in the <laughs> middle of the sermon. <laughs> I heard about that in yeah. first service. Yeah, the first service, there the was jack a jackhammer next door. That was, that was interesting. <laughs> um, but as a member, you you are, are are signing on to receive spiritual discipline mm-hmm. um, from the leaders of the church, and and so for you as a member to to reject that is out of a place of spiritual immaturity, and you're mm-hmm. actually rejecting what you are saying that you will do, um, and and I mean that's it's pretty pretty clear that you're not doing that. Uh, and so if you are confronted in any regards by a spiritual leader and, and you're a member, you, you are being held accountable to that. And I would say on the flip side, if there was a person in our congregation who was um, ranting a whole lot or speaking very aggressively towards people who identified in that way, again, they would be subject to the same yeah. spiritual and biblical discipline mm-hmm. that the church Absolutely. would take on just in the, op- it's just the opposite realm. So um, neither is greater than the other, but both are serious. So last question is this, uh, will churches lose their tax exemption if they refuse to marry gay uh, or would they be forced to close their doors? Um, and so the answer to that is currently no. Uh, currently, um, you know, the, the Supreme Court keeps a pretty wide berth when it comes to churches and, and allowing us to live out our beliefs uh, as we see fit. 
Um, and so um, is it possible that down the road that the legislation change, changes to where we would be uh, accused of some sort of discrimination if we refuse, if as I as a pastor refuse marriage to a, a gay couple? That's possible down the road, I guess. Uh, and, and, but then here, here's my thing about that, that the, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't change anything because we didn't form a church so that we could have tax exemption status. That's not the reason we became a church, right? Uh, we have much higher goals in mind than tax exemption. And, and if we lose our tax exemption and we start having to, you know, pay whatever percentage of the church's income to the government for taxes, can, can we just be honest? It's not the end of the world. It's, it's annoying. It's, it's, it's not how our people would want their money to be spent necessarily, but it's not the end of the world either. Is it possible that I, as a pastor, could face fines or, um, or prosecution you know, somewhere down the road if I refuse certain rights to certain people? It's possible, but I wouldn't be the first pastor to wind up in prison for standing what he believed in. So. Um, and so I, I, to me, again, these issues, I would just encourage you, don't allow yourself to succumb to fear and get bogged down in these issues. What the government does, the government will do. And we, we just live in whatever context we're called to live in. We were faithful in whatever context we're called to be faithful in. And so we've been overly blessed for the last 200 plus years to have all the freedoms that we have. And our brothers and sisters around the globe do not have those freedoms and meet secretly and, uh, you know, don't have tax exemption and, you know, all the kind of things that we enjoy. And if we lose some of those rights, to me, it just, one, it's a little bit annoying. And two, history has proven that the church flourishes under persecution. And so if persecution comes to the church, it's actually good news for the church. It's actually good news for us. And so, I, I, again, just don't, just don't succumb to the fear around those topics. Now, does that mean you shouldn't speak up and you shouldn't exercise a vote and exercise you know, the voice you have with your legislators and stuff like that? Absolutely not. You know, be active in the, in the structure that we're, we're, we live in. I think that's all good. Uh, but we, be active without being hateful. Mm-hmm. Be active without being bigoted. Don't be... Don't become who we're so often accused of becoming. Yeah. Okay. So the question is, what's the difference between a church attender and a church member? And, and it's a distinct, first of all, the idea of church membership is not a biblical idea. Uh, that's something, honestly, it has to do more with what we've just recently talked about with the whole tax exemption thing. When you put together a 501c3 organization, a tax exempt organization, you're required to have a board and a voting body and all of that kind of stuff. And so churches, uh, American churches tend to organize membership around those things. And, and so that the only requirement for membership into the capital C church is faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. And when I say capital C church, I mean the church worldwide, right? Uh, but for a local body of believers, they usually say, if you're going to be a member of this church, this is what we want to do. We want to disciple you. We want to disciple you. We, we want you to uh, submit to the spiritual authorities in this church. And, and we want to encourage you and help you grow and that sort of thing. And that means that if we, 
you know, see your life going off track, we're lovingly going to, you know, have some conversations with you about that to help you get back on track, not to punish you, not to kick you to the curb, but because that's what loving discipleship looks like. Okay. And so that's, that's the distinction. So can you go to heaven and not be an official church member? Yes. absolutely. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yes. That's true. Yes. That they align themselves with you the way you believe and everything else. Yes. Absolutely. Good point. Yeah. Yep. David. Mm. And I think it's important, mm-hmm. important on the flip side of that, too, to remember that uh, there is something about the Judeo-Christian ethic that is difficult for every single one of us to live up to. Like, you can single out an issue, but for every person in this room, there's something about living a biblical, godly life that you find difficult to do. And, and so it's not about... Well, it's just your nature. Give into that. God actually calls us not to embrace our nature, but to embrace his nature. And, and so it's, it's really important. So, again, this, these are all gospel conversations that we have with people, pointing them uh, like beyond the issue to the heart of the matter. And, and, uh, and so, anyway, good conversations. Yeah. And it, I, go ahead. Yeah, I, was just saying, I, I, I feel like part of that stems into um, something that I was surprised we actually didn't get the question about. Is it a choice or uh, are you born with it? Um, and I think that part of that uh, kind of stems into that, whereas the world would define you if, if you believe that you are born or, or even if you choose to have um, the, the affinity for or the desire for, the world would identify you as a homosexual. The, the biblical definition of homosexual would be to practice homosexuality. And so by the, by the world's definition, kind of like what I said earlier, the world's definition, you're absolutely right, that if you identify as homosexual, that doesn't necessarily even mean that you practice it from the world's definition, but mm. biblical Yes. Yeah. I would All right. Say, so, oh, sorry, can I say something? Okay, we have, go ahead. I was going to say, I think, um, especially in our society these days, there's such a push to, um, especially as young people, to kind of compartmentalize yourselves where, like, um, I, Liz, have a standard of labels that define me. So I am, you know, 
a hippie or I whatever, 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 you know, or I'm a hipster, you know what I mean? And so people are like, oh, I'm a homosexual. Like, that's another label. I think one of the most beautiful things about um, about Christianity and one of the things that we can bring really to hope for people is that freedom from those labels, which is you're not this list of things that the world wants to assign you to or that you've chosen to assign yourself because you have no other way to define yourself. The truth is, is that there's freedom from all of that. And, you know, Jesus sees you as perfectly imperfect and there's no, there's nothing that's more beautiful than that kind of grace. So I think, you know, as we have those conversations with people and with our friends who are struggling with these, you know, whatever label, whether it's homosexuality or not, um, that's of great comfort to a lot of people who just think that they have, they have this desire so they're stuck in this box, and the truth is that they're not. So. But I think the, the important thing, too, is that uh, the, the gospel is not just unreasonable for homosexuals. It's unreasonable for all of us. It is. It's unreasonable for all of us. And so for us to be a people who will uh, submit to the authority of, of Christ and submit to the Holy Spirit's movement in our life and to submit to the Word of God, there's aspects of that that, that are difficult and, and uh, downright unreasonable for us to fall in line with, but that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. We can't force our lives to change. It's through submitting ourselves to God and to his Holy Spirit that they bring about life change in our life. So I know there's a lot more questions, but I honestly have to go. I've got to pick up a buddy at the airport. So um, I appreciate you guys listening to us tonight, and, and I hope this conversation was helpful. I hope the study was help, help, valuable to you. Um, if you. Let me just say this. If you disagree, it's completely okay for you to disagree. Um, we need to be a, a people who will disagree well. Uh, and, and, and if you disagree with the way the scripture was presented tonight, can I just challenge you? That does not mean we have to break fellowship at all. Uh, we, we're not all going to agree on every little detail of, of, you know, how scripture should be interpreted. But let's continue to do life together. And we'll st- we're all still trying to figure this out. We'll keep trying to figure it out. And we'll keep trying to live, you know, this Christian life uh, better than we did yesterday. And um, anyway, thank you for engaging in the conversation. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Jeff at livinghopedixon.com. You can email me whatever questions you have. Yeah. You just put that on the internet. Yeah. Just openly put that on the internet. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. So, <laughs> all right. <laughs> on the podcast. It's on the podcast. I don't want to edit that out. All right. No, this will be podcasted uh, tonight. Tonight's thing will be podcasted so you can listen to that or share it with friends or whatever. And uh, obviously this morning's will be too. I leave to go camping in the morning. I'm going to try to get those posted tonight, but no promises. Um, so anyway. Thank you all. Thank you all for showing up. Yes, Jim. <laughs> I do. I do. It's a hateful so-and-so.com. So, anyway, good. All right, Isaiah, you asked the most questions. Would you close this in prayer? <laughs> yeah. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for this fellowship. Thank you for taking us serious and wanting to know more about you.
Thank you, guys.